listening to the Adam and Kyle podcast, where we hope to ignite inspiration through seeking the extraordinary and the ordinary. We will bring you episodes where we will let you in on our decades-long journey as friends and have conversations with guests about their passions, learning through lived experiences, and what challenges and excites them. Also, listen for bonus episodes that revolve around our shared love for music as we take a deep dive into our favorite bands, albums, and what we're spinning. Thanks for hanging out with us. Enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of the Adam and Kyle podcast. I am one of your hosts for this show, Adam. The other is my esteemed co-host, Kyle. Steamed. Thank you for hanging out with us today. <laughs> On today's episode of the podcast, we are joined by a good friend of the show. He is my old boss a few times over. He's the proud father of two full girls. He has a degree from the Pacific Institute of Culinary Arts in Vancouver. And he's also been in a bunch of kick-ass bands local in the Calgary scene, such as Cranston Foundation, Mallard, Old Ghosts, and most recently as the bass player of Bear Horse. We're super pumped that he's joining us today. Please welcome Alex Black. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Hello. Appreciate it. Hey, hey man. no problem. Thanks for joining us. So, uh, Alex, so, yeah, we, we've never met before, so I'm really yeah. excited to... to talk with you today and uh, adam's kind of mentioned that you guys have a bit of a history together so um i don't know adam do you want to comment on that at all like where'd you guys meet yeah we go we go back a, a few years i was trying to uh, like i don't know 15, 12 15-ish yeah. or so yeah it probably would have been about maybe 2005 you probably started working e- with us at beep yeah boss and pizza yeah that was a long time ago is that the one on one thirtieth? Yeah. So the it is. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. The one. I know a few people. That's there. the old stomping grounds yeah. for many. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was a that was an odd time. Were you there when I got there, Adam, or did you come after I was already there? Uh, I think you were already there. Oh, okay. I'm, yeah, I'm pretty sure. Like when I when when I was there, yeah, it was you and uh, you were the AGM, I I believe at that point. That's right. Right. And then Jack bounced, and I took over. Yeah. 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 Long, so that, long yeah, time. That was a long ass time ago. <laughs> yeah. That definitely was probably like 2005 or six, maybe, maybe 2007. Right at the yeah. height of Cranston. And Foundation. then, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you guys were playing live shows at that point still. Yeah. No, we, by 2007, we would have, we were one of the first winners for the X929 um, exposure contest. 
Jeez. And that was, and that was 2007. Right. And that's back when they used to have a massive payout and they put on this huge show and you'd be playing with a bunch of label bands. It was great. It was a great time. We went yep. from having really big shows and packed audiences to playing really, 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 really big crowds. So it was, it was going hmm. swimmingly well, I should say at that point. Yeah. Cause that, um, um, when did communicate come out to, was that that same year, 2000? Uh, it would have been maybe 2005 or, or 2006. And then it was kind of, we just weren't getting any, um, sort of traction off of it. But once X929 right. played it, that was a totally different story. We movement revolution was charting. Um, we even ended up kind of middle of the pack on their year end wrap up um, for most requested songs of the year. So I think we were like, I don't know, like 60th, but we were ahead of incubus. So I'll take that one. <laughs> that's pretty, that's, that's something to write home about for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'll brag about that one every now and then. <laughs> what, uh, what yeah, was we'll, it like? We'll get, in, we'll get into the, Sorry, I was Go just going to say, what was, what was it like uh, um, playing in front of those huge audiences? I've only had the opportunity twice. Mm. So I, I don't know, like, what was it like for you? Uh, you know, it's, I kind of found it almost easier than playing in front of the small ones, right? The small yeah. audiences, you don't have a lot of room for error there. People are right up in your face and um, mm. you don't really have that chance to make a big mistake that everybody just doesn't notice. Right. Right. But when you're in these big crowds, once you get past about, you know, 800, 900 people staring at you, we get over that mm -hmm. part of it. There's just so much energy going on in the room that you can mess up all you want. And most of the time, nobody's going to really notice. They just, they're kind of into the song. And um, especially when you had a popular song, it was, you know, there people are singing the, the words back to you and they know the parts are coming. So it's just like, they're anticipating it. So you're anticipating them. So it's kind of more of their, you're feeding off of the, the larger crowd. And suddenly it gets really, really easy because they're giving back to you what you're giving to them. Um, that's, so I true. will, yeah. I will say though, the first time we started a song and <clears throat> the crowds came in and started singing at the right point, And it caught me so off guard <laughs> that I missed my cue. And I didn't sing. And I just stood there still playing, staring at everybody singing the song. And then I'm thinking in my head, I turn around to the guys. I'm like, well, do we start now? Or do we go from where they've started from? <laughs> yeah. That's great. Hilarious. Yeah. Those were good times, man. Those that's, were... that's surreal. That's crazy. Yeah. It was, it was pretty nuts. Back then we got a chance to play warp tour when it came through town and that was nuts. That was one of the biggest crowds we'd ever played for. So that was pretty great. Mm -hmm. And I miss Warp Tour. Me too. Oh. Um, so yeah, we're, we'll get into we'll get sure, into yeah. the, uh, the old history of the bands. Yeah, absolutely. A little bit later. Sure. I've always been, I've always been super curious about a bunch of stuff. So I'm just going <laughs> to we'll pick your brain there. Sounds great. Um, yeah, Kyle, to answer kind of a little bit more of your, of your previous question. Um, I can't remember, I can't remember how long we worked at Boston pizza together and when you left, but I ended up well, following you to a couple of, couple of other places after that too. Yeah, that's right. I, um, when I moved home from Vancouver, um, I started working 
um, actually down at the national on 17th and we were opening national tents. I was part of that team, but then I got an opportunity to be managing partner of the Clyberger. What at that point, Clyberger was going to become like a, like a full on franchise. So they wanted somebody who would be able to understand how franchise would work, had a culinary background, also a operational side of things. And then obviously I went looking for my guys and you were high on my list just cause you and I were always, it was just so easy to work with you all the time. You, you would take my cues. You would always listen to what I would ask of you. And I, I feel like I wasn't too much of a shithead boss. So that's, <laughs> that's always a good thing. Not, not as much as the other guy now. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Then, yeah. Yeah. And then after, and after Clive, um, I left that company and then, uh, and then Jack brought me on to help him open Tommy field because it was a big oh. gastro pub identity thing. They were having struggles with, I guess at the time, once again, <laughs> go fishing through my, uh, my address book. Who, who do I need that can help me make this work? And you were more than apt to join them yeah. as well. Yeah. Right and I ended up bringing it along. Do you remember, uh, like, do you remember Spencer? Yeah. Yeah. Of course. All our buddy Spencer. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I ended up like, cause like he was at Boston pizza too. He might've come on after you were there. Yeah. He came on. I remember poaching um, him. I poached him on purpose. I remember like, he's going to be great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so I remember telling him about the Tommy field thing and I was like, you gotta, you gotta get here. You gotta come on. Then, and then I felt bad because just like you, was, I was thinking about it today. It was kind of like a funny little chain of chain of stuff that was going on because you would, you would leave and then I would come along with you <laughs> and then you would leave then I'd and then I'd come along with you <laughs> and then you'd leave again. And then, but also every time that I moved to a new place, I was like, Hey Spencer, come on with me. And then yeah. he'd come on and then I'd leave. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then, so it was just like this. Yeah. It's hilarious. That's super funny. Yeah, he's managing a, a cactus club now. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he did get into They're that cactus club so. gig. Yeah, it's, it seems him. to be going really well for him, too. He's gotten a lot of opportunity through there. So, yeah. So, where are you guys right now? Are you in Calgary, Cal? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm in Oak Tokes, actually. But, oh, you're in uh, Oak Tokes? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I uh, just moved here. So, this is an cool. empty room of my house because the other rooms are not clean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, where are you, Adam? I'm in uh, good old Winnipeg at the moment. That's right. That's what I thought. But uh, but not for long. We, uh, my wife was doing her like an internship program for her PhD. Yeah. So like she's like all through UBC. Gotcha. Um, so she's been doing that like out of UBC. But we just moved out here in September last year, just for the year. So we're moving Perfect. back to Langley. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're moving back. Killer, uh, killer year. End of next month. That's great. Are you, are you in Calgary, yeah, Alex? I'm I am. Super yeah. Excited. Yeah, I'm in Calgary. Nice. And what are you doing for work now? That like, are you still at Tommy Field, or do you? No, or... no. So once I uh, once I had kids, my restaurant career kind of changed for me. It was really weird. I hmm. was doing really well, and the better I did uh, in the restaurant industry, the more time I would have to put into it. And I'm a real, uh, I don't 
some control freak that makes sure things work right. <laughs> and uh, I would be spending so much time at the restaurant. I was not spending any time with my wife and my kids. Right. And, uh, and even if I was, chances are, you know, eight times out of 10, I'm, I was going to have to leave for whatever reason. Um, and I would have to go back to the restaurant. And so it just kind of came to a point where I was thinking to myself, like, what do I want to be more a, a good dad or a good restaurateur? And it just ended up being that I kind of came to a point, especially with Tommy field, where I felt the ownership didn't really appreciate my vision for that place, which by the way, was rad. Um, <laughs> Yeah. And, and I, and I was missing out on, on my kids. They were babies. My wife was slinging a infant and a two-year-old at the same time. Like it was a huge challenge for her. So, um, I got an opportunity to join a company called marketplace events. And, uh, with, what you're basically doing is you're managing the home and garden shows. And so they would do all the home and garden shows across North America. And, uh, I jumped on with them about six years ago. Um, and it was a really cool experience. It was similar to restaurant life. Um, managing people mm -hmm. is managing people, right? Like it yeah. doesn't matter if you're serving food or if you're selling booth space. So I got into that and it was a totally different world. I was, I was working nine to five, like clock in, clock out, no emails, no phone calls after work. I could be home in time for dinner, bath time. Um, and I was present. That was the main thing. I was present. I wasn't sort of, you know, off in my head thinking, Oh my God, they're, you know, the kitchen's going to be crashing or owns are there eyeballing up the bartenders, not serving people quick enough. Like I just, I didn't have any of that on my plate anymore. And for the first time in 15 years, I wasn't the boss and that felt really good. I didn't have to be on the hook for everything. Yeah. Right. And, uh, it was kind of liberating to be honest, just to be working your way up a, a different totem pole that you've never you've never kind of been in that industry. So I really liked it. I kind of worked my way up and hmm. COVID hit and everything kind of shut down. <laughs> Shit. Uh, yeah. Well, that leads really, I was going to say my next what, question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what were you going to say, Adam? Yeah. I was going to say what, uh, like, I was just going to ask what, what your life has been like since the, uh, since the old since pandemic the, hit since the Rona yeah uh it's been different it's i i'm not gonna lie i'm sure everybody would say that as well is that i don't know very many people are like mm -hmm. well, life's exactly the same as it was when before the pandemic it's it's definitely been different um i obviously wasn't working because the only way trade shows work is with people and if people can't yeah. be around people then those things aren't happening so our company basically just went on mm -hmm. life support during the pandemic and kind of laid everybody off so for the first little while, especially when we were all quarantined up, we, it was just Andy and I and the kids and we just hung out to be honest. Like, I wish I had a better way of putting it. It was winter time. It was shitty. out, And we would just kind of chill around the house and watch movies. Probably drank too much during that time, just because yeah. there was nothing else to do. <laughs> um, but we would just spend time with each other. And it was funny because, you know, when you're, when you think, you know, your, you know, your partner you've been with for half your life and you think, you know, your children really, really well, and then you get quarantined with them, man, you get a good look at each other, man. Like you start seeing some stuff about each other. You're like, you do this in public. Like you just have a, a better understanding of who everybody is. So having said that, I, really? 
really felt like it was kind of a, a cool experience for our family, particularly. Um, mm -hmm. And then when things kind of started to open up, Andy is uh, in the dental industry and she's killing it in her career right now. And she's very busy. So as soon as that was able to be open again, she was gone. And right. we didn't know what we were going to do with the kids. Kids were still homeschooling. We didn't know if schools were going to shut down. We didn't know what was going on. So I opted to be the stay at home parent and uh, mm -hmm. captain nice. the girls, man, just make sure they were aware of that. The house was in order that things were still moving. <laughs> like the machine can't stop because now Andy's the breadwinner. Of course. Yeah, um, totally. Yeah. So I kind of took that on and, again, it's been a real eye opener, man. Like this is something that I didn't realize as hard as it was. Um, yeah. like being a single parent, I could not fucking imagine how hard that would be. No That's shit. Me eh? sounds yeah. like <laughs> yeah, you got mad respect for anybody who's a single parent slinging a full-time job and keeping their kids, you know, on a straight path. Um, my mm -hmm. mom was a single parent and she, I, I have a completely different interpretation of what it's like. Um, and not to say that Andy wasn't here, but it's just that, you know, I was just dealing with the girls full time. Like they're my job. Um, yeah. so it's been really good. Um, I'll most likely be going back to work in the fall, but it's been great. Like I've just taken this sort of different sort of direction and in, in my life just over the pandemic. And I, you know, I wanted to go back to work and I was like, oh God, I'm getting stir crazy. I want to work. And, but Andy was just like, man, you've been working full time since you were 14. You can take one year out of your life to not. Yeah. So okay. I would do things around the house, hmm. you know, like big giant projects, like build a deck and I'm going <laughs> to yeah. repaint the entire basement, like to those kind of things. But it's satisfying though. It's been good. So yeah, yeah totally. good, honest work. <laughs> yeah. All in all. Yeah. There's some, I'm sure there's some gloomy days and some dark days where not seeing your, your friends and your immediate family started to get really old. Um, mm -hmm. but I was lucky because we could still semi work on bear horse. So that's kind of my, my overview of the pandemic for me. Oh, that's cool. And that's kind of in line with, uh, several responses we've gotten. Like there's generally people are looking pretty positively on, on the pandemic and finding the best in it. And it seems like you've got the same kind of outlook where, you know, you got time spent with your kids, you got to do some projects, you got some time off work. And, and I think that yeah. that positivity is the only thing that really keeps us sane through a time like this. I agree. I totally agree. I know, I know there's a lot of other people who really struggled financially, emotionally. Um, I, I couldn't imagine if I was just a single dude sitting around in a quarantine that probably mm -hmm. I wouldn't have had a great time with it. Right. I did um, that. I drank a lot of whiskey and then realized <laughs> I should stop drinking whiskey and yeah. then did something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But yeah, I don't know. I, I tend not to try and always like, I feel like I'm kind of bragging, like this, pan this pandemic was great, but, um, <laughs> for the most part for us, it, it ended up working out just fine which we didn't know that it was at the time we were really freaked out at right. first, but well, of course. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. And I also would imagine too, like if you're one of those people who are, you know, you're heavily into conspiracy theories and you're going down these rabbit holes of, you know, nefarious reasons for this and that it's like, this would have been the worst time for you because you're just probably off the deep end. <laughs> totally. I think a lot of people did go off the deep end. I think a lot of people yeah. did. Yeah. I definitely know I was a lot wondering of people about that actually. Yeah. What's that? just like 
people that are like in or believe that sort of stuff, like they just must be like emotionally just drained at the moment. I think so. I think it's just gives them something that they can latch on to that makes sense in a time where nothing's making sense. It's like they get these aha moments and I think it just, they're not paying attention to reason <laughs> and science mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And they latch onto <laughs> these, aha, I knew it kind of things. And it just takes them down these weird right. paths and good friends of mine too, that have sent some really weird stuff where you're like, what are you talking hmm. about? Like that doesn't like, <laughs> you're a smart person. I know you. It's weird. It is weird. And yeah, there was a friend of mine that was, Oh, sorry, Kyle. Yeah, there was a friend of mine that was like, um, telling me that he was like, I'm not going to get the vaccine because the government's going to control my mind. Oh my God. I was like, <laughs> I'm sorry that you think that. Cause I mean, Jesus, you know, I'm all, I'm all sorry to interrupt, but I was just going to say, I, I'm all for people who say, you know what, I'm making the decision. I, I don't want to get this. That's their, their call. And that's fair. Um, I'm not one of those people. And, but it's the people who are like the crazy talk. Like you're saying, like, they're like, they're going to try and track you. Like, come on, pal, you have a phone in your pocket. And by yeah. the way, you're, you're, you're not that interesting. So they yeah. probably don't give a shit that you've gone out for another beer this week. You know, like it's just, it's silly waste of your emotional headspace. Exactly. Totally. I saw this meme today or yesterday. It was basically like, uh, we didn't talk on Facebook during the, or we didn't see each other in person uh, because of the pandemic, but now I won't see you after the pandemic because of what you posted on Facebook or like, it's something <laughs> like that. Right. Like, it's like, it's like, <laughs> it was pretty funny. Yeah. Sounds about right. My, uh, my good friend, Ben Woodland posted a really great meme the other day and he goes, what was it? It basically just said, it's like funny. All my anti-vaxxer friends didn't thank me for reopening, like, reopening everything. It's like my efforts are going unnoticed. It's <laughs> <laughs> so good. Uh, oh, that's so funny. Um, so Alex, I wanted to ask a little bit about, um, like you touched on your, your relationship with your daughters and stuff like that and kind of how your yeah. life has looked since they came into the picture. Um, sure. Cause they're what, like eight, eight now. Uh, Amelia's eight and Audrey's six. Right. Okay. It's crazy. I still remember the day like you came in when we were working at Tommy field and you came in and told me that you were having a kid. Yeah. That would have been, that would have been Audrey. Yeah. It was Wednesday. It was raining. <laughs> I, yeah. I don't actually know if it was Wednesday, but I remember it was like monsooning out for some reason. It's one of those weird memories. We were just like think, sitting, we were sitting at the wood having uh, a blue buck. And uh, I think I remember that day, that monsoon ripping through the parking lot. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, what do you want to know about to, those little goofballs? Um, well, you touched on actually mostly about what I was, what we were kind of curious about. Um, I did want to ask because I keep I keep checking out your uh, sleeves there for those oh, listeners. Yeah. There, he's uh, Alex is all tatted up. I do. Um, I got some zaps. <laughs> yeah, and your um, I remember you have uh, it's a portrait, I believe, tattooed of your grandmother is that correct yeah i've got a on my forearm it's of her on her wedding day right so i was curious about um a little bit about the the inspiration to get that tattooed and kind of if you wanted to touch a little bit on what your what your relationship was like with her because i've always been kind of curious about that because i mean you don't just 
people don't just get anyone tattooed like yeah, that on no, there. For sure. Um, my grandmother was like, she was like the matriarch of our family, like big boss of everyone. Um, which was ironic because my grandfather who was also very, you know, Mr. In charge, like, um, but she, I don't know. There's just something about her. She basically went through like the craziest time ever, like world war two supporting so many children that she had mm. taking care of them all, making sure they were all on the right path. Um, and once my mother and her siblings all had their children, she didn't miss a beat. It's like every, um, grouping of my cousins, because we kind of go in weird age groups, right? There's big gaps in between because my, my mom and her siblings had big age gaps as well. And, uh, every single grouping of cousins were like, she just took you under her wing and it was just like all the attention in the world was on you. She'd constantly be teaching you stuff, music and cooking and like constantly. And like, you know, like little life skills that at the time I was so annoyed by, but when it came to culinary school and, you know, chef slams a fish down in front of everybody and goes, who can gut this? And I was the only person in that room who could confidently get up there and just do it with my eyes closed. Wow. I did that because she, my grandfather and my uncles would come in off Lake Manitoba and they would come in with all these fish. And I just remember sitting with my grandma and we would just sit over the wash sink and we just go through and got all these fish, clean them, scale them, get them ready for dinner. Yeah. And at the time I would hate that stuff, but just annoy the shit out of me so much. And, mm -hmm. uh, but it was just those little things, these little practical things that she would teach me and teach my cousins and my brother. And it, uh, it just really stuck with me. And even as I became an adult, she was just really, really great about always giving me that those little moments of undivided attention and advice. And she was just mm -hmm. such a really loving person. And when she passed, it was, you could just kind of feel it. It's like, it's like when the, the matriarch in an elephant grouping dies and every elephant is just, kind of gets a punch in the soul a little bit and right it's just i don't know it was one of the one of the first sort of like earth tilting moments for myself if i can can't really explain it better it's just <sighs> for that first time in my life and i lost good friends but that one was different right it, it's just mm -hmm. um your parents and your grandparents man if you have great relationships i think you they're you're so interlaced and connected that it just i don't know I felt like I needed to tribute her and it felt like the right thing to do. And I still feel super pumped to have her on my arm. And, and totally. I tell that story to anybody who asks. It sounds like she left a pretty incredible legacy with your family in general, which is, is phenomenal. Like it's all we could wish for is to leave that kind of legacy. I think. <laughs> I agree. Kids too. I, <laughs> yeah. Like I hope my, mm -hmm. I hope my, you know, when I eventually have grandchildren, I hope they think back on me in that way too. So that's, She's definitely one of those classy yeah. old school ladies who, you know, you just, she was, she was a great grandmother. I, that's all I can really put it down to. It just boils down to, she was just right. a really amazing person. Was she what inspired right. you to go into culinary school? And it's funny. I didn't think it at the time, but like I said, even just telling you that story about gun fish with her or making biscuits or cooking chicken and stuff like that, or apple crisp is something that I always think of. Um, mm -hmm. It, 
I didn't realize it was there. Maybe she was the first one to kind of put those ideas in my head, but not specifically. She didn't, she wouldn't have pushed me in that direction. She would have passed away well before I made that decision. But, um, it was just, uh, she was just kind of my first sort of like, um, my first sort of time with cooking. She didn't treat me like a kid. It was like, grab that hot thing, use this sharp knife, cool. kill that animal. We're going to eat that, <laughs> you know? So, so she was, <laughs> yeah, that's set real. The, <laughs> yeah. Set, set the tones, you know? Yeah, for sure. Did you end totally. up getting, did you get your red seal, Alex? Um, so long story short, I didn't get my red seal. Um, I went through the accelerated program at Pika and it was an amazing experience. Um, and I was somewhat led to believe that when I got to the end, I would be fast tracked and I could go straight into it, but I couldn't. Um, and I was really frustrated with that. And I think I told Adam this as well. Um, we had a conversation, I think in my car about this years ago, but, um, mm -hmm. yeah, I was really frustrated with that. Um, because what I was led to believe at the time of enrollment was that all my years that I'd worked in the restaurant industry would be applicable to my, um, to my practicum. Right. And, and they weren't. And I oh. had kids to worry about. <laughs> and I was like, fuck, yeah. I've got to go to work guys. <laughs> and I didn't have time or the resources to support a new family on, you know, on a line cook salary. Um, and work my way up. I had to get back into a role that I knew I could pull some from some pretty solid oh, bank. Right. Uh, so, yeah. so I had to make a decision. It was like one of those forks in the road. Do I slug it out, become a great chef working under more great chefs for, you know, five or six years, but I'm not going to make any money and my family's going to hate my guts. Or do I take a role where at least I'm in control and I can make better money right out of the gate. So I, uh, I was, uh, I took over as a managing partner, of uh, a Browns that was on Granville Island, which was a great experience. I can't say it was bad by any means, but a little bit frustrating um, that I wasn't able to kind of bring everything to a completion the way I hoped. For sure. I think it's well, an ad even admirable choice though. Like putting your family first. I think we need more of that in the world in general. So <laughs> agreed. I that, yeah. Yeah, I, I support that choice. Yeah. And it's a tough choice of course, but <laughs> good for you, man. Yeah. I've, I've had to make those choices multiple times in my life, especially when now having kids and I kind of feel like maybe sometimes they're not such a great decision for me, but in the long run, they're good for my girls. And I don't think I can regret those decisions as long as they're a positive um, outcome for them. Well, that's right. Well, and that's how you'll end up yeah. leaving that legacy where people want to put your face on their arms. So that's true. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> And maybe one your daughter will have your scruffy little face on their arm. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. <laughs> um, that's interesting about Pika. I, that's also all the more frustrating because some people out there don't realize that Pika is like really freaking expensive. Like it's not cheap for the program you go into. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's not cheap. for like a culinary program. It's... Yeah. No, it wasn't cheap at all. Um, however, the instruction that I got there was hands down. I, like I, I find it hard to put into words when people are asking me, you know, what did you think it was worth it? You know, now that you're not, not cooking, you spent a bunch of money to learn how to cook, but now you don't professionally cook. But the stuff that I was able to learn in that amount of time from chef Jean-Jacques, mm -hmm. who I studied under was it's insane. 
It's absolutely insane. I still feel like, although I haven't been cooking, uh, for a long time now, I still feel like I could set up shop and knock down so many dishes with not even a thought, just all these little things are just reflex now. Yeah. Very cool. And that stuff is great. It benefits my family. Like my, my wife and my kids <laughs> eat really good all the time. <laughs> I was going to say, especially now that you were a stay at home dad for the last year, you're probably cooking up a storm in there. I was, I won't lie though. I phoned it in a few times. There's, there's chicken finger and fries night all the time, but <laughs> yeah. Ordering pizza. La hey, hey laundry's not going to fold itself. Exactly. <laughs> with, um, with, with your like, uh, decision to go to Pika, that was yeah. a little bit after you got into like the restaurant game, correct? Yeah. I've been in with Boston pizza for probably like eight years at that time. Um, okay. and, uh, I, again, I just kind of came sort of like to this point where I was like, if I'm going to work in restaurants, I'm going to want to work in a restaurant of my own at the time. That was my idea. I wanted to, wanted to own my own place. And in my mind, if I was going to own my own place, then I needed to know how to do everything. So operating right is hard and that takes a long time, but I put a lot of time and I'd been a GM for oh, quite a while. Um, I knew how to, how to guide and fix kitchen problems, but I didn't fully understand like the inner depths of really fine culinary art um, mm -hmm. and knowing how to, to properly cook and not Boston pizza cook, like cook, cook everything <laughs> from scratch. Oh, does that not happen at Boston pizza? It does, but there's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of cut in the bags, right? I think I actually more so now, I think they've, they've really like turned a corner with their yeah. culinary program. And not to say that they don't, cause I don't want to slag them because they obviously do make things in house, but yeah, but it's just the little things like knowing the theory of these, you know, mother sauces and just these basic things that you need to know how to do. So like that kind of stuff, I felt like I needed to understand that. So I wanted to be essentially yeah. the, you know, the, the, the authority in all avenues of the restaurant business. So totally. What is a mother sauce? So there's five mother sauces in French. Kyle, Kyle love really loves one of the five mother sauces. <laughs> Which oh. one's that? I don't know. Uh, Hollandaise. Oh, <laughs> yes. that, that's a big one. Um, those so. five mother sauces are the root and base of all the sauces you use in cooking. And it doesn't matter whether you're, um, if you get into more of like Asian cuisines, they're not so prevalent, but they're still there. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. It's just basically under the assumption that every great dish that's ever been made is based in French culinary. <laughs> so it's kind of snobby <laughs> at first. Right. But it really is. European cooking is every single sauce is based on these mother sauces. There's only, there's five. You said, can you list them yeah. out just cause I'm really curious. Jesus. Yeah, uh, I hope so. Fuck. Well, so we, we need one. Holland. Yeah. Demi glass. Hollandaise. Hollandaise. Uh, just your standard red tomato sauce, tomato base, uh, uh bechamel. bechamel and velouté. Wow. Things I didn't know. <laughs> and then from there, those five all have about a hundred derivatives of each. Right. Totally. Don't ask me to name any of them because I can't anymore. But <laughs> at the height of my uh, 
my studies, I could knock down, uh, I think the best I could do is 20 derivatives of each. Hmm. That's cool. I tried to make a hot. I tried to make a hollandaise sauce from scratch and I was successful the first time and failed so hard the second time. So I think I just had <laughs> beginner's luck the first time. Yeah. Yeah. Or it's I got a cocky. weird one, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's a tough one. That's cooking, for sure. Cooking's like that, man. Just like everything else you have, you have good days cooking where just everything works out really perfectly. And then you have shitty days cooking where you just can't seem to get anything right. It's true. That's fair. That's I'm actually uh, on that note. I think I'm most excited about my sourdough that's sitting in the fridge right now. It rose so spectacularly that I I'm really excited to bake it and see what happens. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I love making bread. It's fantastic. I just started and I love it. It's delicious. And I'm eating way more bread than I ever did before because it's yeah. so delicious. <laughs> Absolutely. That's great. Yeah. At some point, I'm going to have to plug my phone in for a quick charge. Is that going to mess up the mic at all? Probably. Um, it's actually a good time. We could do a, an ad break here. talking a little bit about the restaurant industry um Mm -hmm. i wanted to just uh first of all just mention to you that alex you were you have been like one of my favorite bosses i've ever had by the way um and you just had like this and something that that you kind of taught me that i've tried to take with myself when i've been in managing roles in the restaurant industry is that you've always had this really good balance of like being able to like make the workplace environment, like a lot of fun, but then you'll also just like crack the whip when it needs to be cracked and it just have no problem. Like being like someone's best pal, but at the same time when they need their face, freaking (laughs) like, you know, yelled off at you have no problem. Just like, I remember a few times that you fucking kind of lost it on me a little bit, but I mean, shit happens and, I need to be put into my place. So, I mean, I always appreciated that. I always appreciated that balance of like, you could, you could just kind of scream in my face and Boston pizza. And then we'd go out back and have a cigarette and talk about music and just chill. Like nothing happened. No so doubt. That was all. Um, yeah. I never wanted to be, uh, I don't know. I just, I kind of just always had these standards in my head and I never wanted it to be like, I was an asshole all the time but I never wanted to be, you know, walked over. So I would always, when my, my pack would stray, I would just, like you say, <laughs> jerk that leash a little bit and, and get everyone back in line. But it was for the better good of everybody. It wasn't for me to feel like I had some power authority over anyone. It was just yeah. necessary. And like yeah. you said, it wasn't, it was never personal. Yeah. You're running, well, you're running exactly. a company at that point, right? So you, you kind of yeah. got to, you got to keep totally. the ship in line. Totally. Yeah. Thanks, and that's man. exactly what that. I've tried to, yeah, no worries. That's exactly what I've tried to take in my management in restaurants is just like, I'll be, I'll be your buddy and stuff, but at the same time, I will let you have it if you need to have it. So, yeah, 
Alex, I have you, just, sorry oh, to sorry, interrupt, but uh, nope. have you managed to transfer those skills into parenthood? Those same kind of balancing acts? <laughs> yeah, they don't work. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, it, my kids, I don't know. The, the way I was brought up in restaurants and how I was trained doesn't apply to parenting, I don't find. It's just that heavy-handedness just does not work uh, with kids, I find. They just, they're not going to understand these little subtle nuances. They're just, their little brains are too new, man. They just right. don't, mm-hmm. they're not going to understand these like subtle little verbal cues or body language. Like that's just not what a six-year-old's going to do, right? Gotcha. Um, there are things that I guess I would apply, you know, you know, repetition and applying yourself and, you know, believing in yourself and not giving up even when things are at their worst, like those kind of things, I guess. Yeah, I definitely do apply to parenting, but the, like Adam said, I wouldn't lose it very often, but when I did, it was a big deal. And doing that to my kids doesn't work. Okay. I don't want my kids to be afraid of me, you know, (laughs) I, uh, like my dad was a yeller, wasn't a hitter and I'm not a hitter either, but I am a yeller and I have to keep that in check a lot. Right. Cause they're, they're not my, they're not my brigade, right. They're my children. And I always have to keep that in perspective. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. You're not their manager. You're their parent. No, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, so yes, the, some things you can apply, but most of it doesn't, doesn't work. <laughs> is there, is there anything, um, regarding your 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 two daughters like you said they're eight and six now and so like Mm -hmm. they're like a five-ish or so years away from from teenagehood or at least um amelia is yeah anything that kind of how is there anything that kind of frightens you about that or is that a little too far in the future to kind of no i'm i'm getting i'm getting glimpses of how it's going to go that's for sure (laughs) um (laughs) and yeah it definitely terrifies the shit out of me because I think back to the age I was at and the things I did when I was 14 or 15, like, that's not far away for her. No, and right. yeah, it's a, I think what our parents, you know, the boomer generation, what they maybe got wrong was they didn't realize that when you're from an infant till you're about 12, there are some things you're, you're taking a lot of it from your parents, how, how your life's going to go. and mm-hmm you, I just think they just weren't quite understanding. There's some impactful moments in your life leading up to that time before you start becoming a teenager and a young adult. And, uh, I'm really understanding that those impacts, they last a long time, especially into their young adult life, which is where you make a lot of your big mistakes in your life. Mm -hmm. So I'm really trying to make sure they uh, at least that I don't sort of negatively impact them as well, their children. Right. But the teenage years are coming, man. I can't, I can't <laughs> stop that. And yeah. I also don't want them living in some silly little bubble protected from every heartache and injury and asshole boy, or, you know, bully girl that they have to deal with. Like that's part of life too you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you want to shield them a little cause you love them, but you don't want them to be these, you know, fragile little birds that can't handle anything. No, cause the totally. world, the world will eat them up and spit them out. <laughs> and I think we're seeing that a lot in the sort of the, the, you know, the 
maybe not so much the millennial generation, but the Gen Zers, man, like they're mm-hmm. fucking fragile about they everything. Yep. It's, yep. it's to the point of ridiculousness. Really. Um, so I'm really hoping that, you know, my generation, the kids that we're, you know, putting out, I hope they're a little more, say, with an 80s flair, if you will. <laughs> yeah. No, I was gonna. Well, I feel like half the battle is awareness. Like the fact that even you're talking about this and aware of the um, the impactful moments up until their teenage years, like that's yeah. half the battle of getting over them and being impactful in those moments is just knowing they exist. So, yeah, because yeah. essentially what I'm going to end up dealing with is if I do things that you know make their confidence low, or if I say things to them that belittle them, they're just going to seek that out in the partners they find. Right. And that's terrifying because I don't want them dealing with some shithead boys or girls, whatever they choose. I don't really care, but I just don't want them to pick bad people to fall in love with. You know, (laughs) Totally. All right. Yeah. I, I I know that wasn't kind of in our notes. I was just curious. No, that's fair. Kind of what that was uh, thinking about. Um, I wanted to scoot back real quick before we go to an ad break here. Um, would you ever consider going back into the restaurant industry or is that, is that kind of dead for you now? Uh, yeah. You know what? It's always something that I'm interested to go back to. It's, it's like, you know, it's like somebody who, you know, becomes a a journeyman welder, but they leave that industry and go do other things. But if times are hard and I need to work and I need to contribute to putting food on the Mm -hmm. table, um, I'll always just go back to restaurants. I would say I don't see myself doing it anytime soon, but it's a possibility. Sure. Cool. I had to ask because I'm, I'm like, cause I'm like still involved in the industry. The pandemic hit me hard over here, especially in Winnipeg. Sure. I haven't been able to work the entire year. Right. Um, but opening a place of my own has been something I've always kind of dreamed about and talked about. And, um, sure. even Spencer, who we mentioned before, like we've been in, we've been in talks for a few years now of, of starting something up. And so I had to ask because, um, if, the, if that day ever comes, you were always going to be at the top of my list of people to call to see if you're interested. So thanks, man. Yeah. I would always, I'd always take that call. Cool. Cool. Um, and I want to touch really quick again, um, and just kind of get your perspective on something. Sure. Uh, we have a we have a guest coming on um, in a couple weeks time. Uh, his name uh-huh. is Robert Belcham. He's a he's a chef out of Vancouver, and he posted something on Instagram um, a few days ago that kind of got a little bit of traction, and a few of my restaurant friends and stuff reposted it, and so did I. And he was talking about the state of the restaurant industry like especially during the pandemic and that um and that every like that he feels that the restaurant industry is kind of going through besides like some of these restaurants trying to like reopen and kind of become profitable again that there's uh kind of like a an epidemic happening with the staff of the restaurant industry and them not being able to or them not wanting to come back and work within the restaurant industry because of the, like the low wage and the overwork and the real stressful hours and 
um, like a bunch of that stuff that you alluded to before. So I was kind of, that's a long roundabout way of asking what I was curious as to what your kind of perception and experience was within the restaurant industry. And, and if that's something that you can see like changing anytime soon, or is that kind of something that might just be part of the gig? Um, I think that, I think the pandemic's just going to really show that there's going to be a lot of fractures in the industry, right? There's going to be a lot of people Mm -hmm. who move on. There's going to be a lot of people who aren't looking to go back to that kind of stress. But I do think there are people who are just built for, for cooking and working in the industry and they, that's, it's their livelihood. It's the thing they do best. Um, Mm -hmm. I think the best thing right now that the industry could do is really open or like go after more um, female chefs, to be honest. I think mm. ironically, it's such a boys club in kitchens usually, you know, and yeah, I feel like a lot of women and young ladies get overlooked really, really hard when, you know, back when selecting a brigade because, you know, the chef in the back of their mind knows that at some point in time i'm going to lose my mind and i don't want to have to deal with the cry session or i don't want to have to you know xyz of any sort of um uh, stereotypes of working with women right Mm -hmm. i think the industry should wholeheartedly embrace the idea of really empowering lots of young women to get involved in and i think it would fill a gap because i think it's the dudes who are more feeling disenfranchised and um like they can't go back to do it again. So if if hmm. that part of the industry is is sort of dying back, the best thing you could do is embrace, you know, a lot of these young female chefs who really don't get as many opportunities. I don't think as the dudes do. Hmm. That's a really interesting take on that, and I completely agree. I because like my my wife and I we watch a ton of cooking shows, and. Um, like one in particular, Hell, Hell's Kitchen with good old Gordon Ramsay. Um, the I remember the last the the last season we watched, um, a female chef won, and it was actually the ninth time in a row, nine years in a row, that a female chef won the Hell's Kitchen, uh, show. Yeah. And I remember saying to my wife, I was like, if I have a restaurant and I need to hire a head chef, I would probably hire a woman because. Yeah. I think that just in general, they're, they're, they're more organized and they kind of have that, that better balance. I think that, that some men don't have, which, so I think it's really interesting that, that you said that perspective on food, right? It's not yeah. uh, like some dudes are just so, um, you know, hammer bashes the nail. If that makes sense. Right. They're just, right. This is how you make this dish. And they're just very uh, crazy about it. And right. female perspective on cooking is, is very different. It's not that it's delicate and feminine. It's just different. Like you said, it's more organized. It's maybe a bit more refined. They're just totally. have a different perspective on it. It's, it's like watching a little boy and a little girl play outside and play, watch the things that boys do just sort of instinctually. And you watch the things that little girls do instinctually. And they're very different mindsets. Totally. Transfers yeah. into 
Okay, cool. Yeah, I just wanted to get your 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 uh, input on that because I think it's a I think it's a issue, and that this is the whole reason why I asked the chef to come on once I saw his post is because I was just like I think it's an issue that tends to be overlooked, especially when it comes to like customers and people and consumers that go and eat at restaurants all the time that have no idea what's happening behind the scenes. I completely agreed with all of the points that he posted. They were, they were really well thought out, you know, like we, we really take for granted this industry. Um, and I think it's only for people who do know what's behind the curtain, if you will. They, like you appreciate restaurants so much more when you know how hard it is to do things so good. Totally. Um, my wife and I, one of our favorite restaurants in the city is 10 Foot Henry. And oh. if they just, it's a home run every time you go. And I just can't stress enough how much I don't care about spending money there. You know, that's, mm-hmm. that's the time when you get a couple hundred dollar bill between the two of you and you're like, I don't care. These people earned that plus tip, you know? Yeah. And right. that's money well spent. And I think the vast majority of diners don't get that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, how are you cool. To, how, are you supposed to, how are you supposed to, you know, show them? Not everyone's going to go to owners. Not everyone's going to work in that industry. Right. I mean, maybe the only way to show them right now in these days is put a Netflix special on about the, <laughs> the hardships <laughs> of what people in restaurants go through. Because other than that, yeah, unless you're unless you've been in the industry, it's it's like I get that it's kind of tough to understand, but yeah, that's exactly why I. The negative side of it is is that if too many people don't care enough, then all we're left with is fast food chains. Because they're the only restaurants that have the deep right. pockets assembly line style of food that would work during a pandemic and even afterwards, right? So totally. I don't want our, you know, my date night with my wife to be at Taco Bell. <laughs> but they've got the cheesy gordita crunch. Okay, maybe Taco Bell every now and then, but not every time. Right? Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Cool. Also, um, I'm, we're going to throw to ad break here. I'm also really that you brought up 10 foot henry because when i come back to uh when we move we're gonna stop through calgary for a week and that was on the top of my list of restaurants to go back to because it's really good it's really good <laughs> they're just yeah. like it's what awesome. a great spin on food they do it's like french laced with all this asian flair it's so good totally um, okay, so with that, we're going to throw to a little ad break here, and then we're going to come back uh, with Alex, and we're going to dive into a little bit more of your music career, and then we'll even hear a song from your new band, Bear Horse. So stick with us. The Adam and Kyle podcast is sponsored by Phoenix Song Productions. Phoenix Song Productions is an AV system provider and integrator specializing in live sound production and recording. Phoenix Song Productions also offers technical consultations, permanent installations, and rentals. Phoenix Song's newest offerings include live streaming consultations, on-site audio and video recording, as well as technical and creative education. 
Check our website at www.phoenixsongproductions.com for the next education or entertainment event. Follow us on social media. Check the show notes below for links to our website and all of our social pages. Uh, welcome back, everyone, from that little ad break. We're sitting here with Alex Black from the band Bear Horse, which, Alex, what's what's that grammar thing called that's in between the bear and the horse? Oh, my what, what do you call just figured it, it out. I, you know, he, he, I think it's he said my guitar player looked it up. He Googled it and finally found it. It was just like, a, a, it's a division or a divider or something <laughs> like that. I know that sounds ridiculous because obviously that's what it's doing. But what did you think it was? I, I actually looked it up. Oh, and oh it's okay. literally, it's literally called vertical line. <laughs> vertical line. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So this is uh, from the band Bear Vertical Line Horse. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so before we get back, uh, into the swing of things, Alex, we ask all of our guests this question, but how does Alex black eat his Oreos? Oh, well, Alex black, when he was 10 would have cracked it open. Like the commercial taught me how so very well to eat the inside (laughs) first. And maybe I would, yeah, maybe I would only eat one of those wafers, but Mm -hmm. now, now I treat it like lucky charms. It's gotta be the full package dipped in milk straight into the mouth. Got to okay. have a bit of the, the cookie and the filling. If you don't have them all at the same time, it's like, I always say to my kids, if they want to have lucky charms, it's like, you can't just eat the marshmallows, man. You got to have some of that cereal. It's got to have balance. That's so funny. You know, the closest we've ever come to people eating Oreos just by taking a bite is dipping in milk first. Like I don't think anyone actually just eats Oreos out of the carton by picking it up and taking a bite. Yeah. My I might do does. it. My, I might do it quickly. Like what? I'm trying to hide it from my kids. I might p- power one in. Sure. But yeah. yeah. But given the chance to, to be alone with myself, I prefer it with milk. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. There's lots of things to do when you're alone with yourself. But... <laughs> it's been a long year. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Uh, so back earlier in the conversation, Alex, we were talking about your grandma and you mentioned that, uh, um, your grandpa would pull lake out of, or pull fish out of Lake Manitoba. Like, are you from Manitoba? No, no, I'm not. Um, but, um, as I was saying, my mom, uh, was born and raised in Delta, Manitoba, which is just on the Southern cusp of Lake Manitoba, just outside of Portage the Prairie. And, uh, so summer vacations and stuff like that were always spent back at my grandparents' house, which they stayed in Delta until they, until they both passed. Um, so I lived there for a quick stint of about like five months before my family moved to Vancouver. Um, and, uh, so just a little bit of time there, but always summer vacations and, um, any, any time there was a big family event from that side, it was always held there. So I've got roots in, in Manitoba and it's a different place, man. It is. I got, I've got lots of family there and I've got lots of musicians in my family there as well. And, um, so it's, it's pretty interesting. Did you get your musical influence from your family? Absolutely. Both my parents were both musicians, um, uh, fairly successful ones too. Um, my dad was a, uh, very popular child pop star when he was, yeah, my dad's name was Terry Black. He, when he was 15, he had a number one hit like through the States, um, and in Canada, he actually was on American bandstand. You can YouTube it and watch this hilarious clip of him singing this (laughs) very 1966 pop tune. 
but it was a hit. It was a massive, massive, massive hit. And he huh. um, basically toured from the time he was 15 until he was 20. Um, he was on the same record label as the Beach Boys and the Mambas and the Papas and the Turtles. Um, he's so popular that in fact, my family moved or his side of the family moved from Vancouver to Los Angeles so that he could, um, go at this, at his music career as a, wow. as a kid, uh, like a young kid, wow. um, that, that single, which is called unless you care. Um, he actually won the first male vocalist of the year for the Genos. Right on. No way. Yeah. I think back then they were called the Maple Music Awards, but it's still in the logs of the first male vocalist. <laughs> that's so funny. I I would never have guessed that, but I don't know you very well, so no, that's okay. <laughs> um, uh, was your mom? Was your mom a musician too? A full board. Yeah, you bet. She's an absolute. Her she was just such an amazingly gifted musician. She, um, when she was 17, she packed up out of Delta, Manitoba and basically hopped on a Greyhound bus and went to Toronto, uh, to chase her career. And hmm. in doing so got a ton of amazing breaks. She was, um, she worked with Anne Murray for probably 20 years touring with her, doing backup on her records, um, she sings most notably sings back up on Bob Seger's night moves. No way. No way. Yeah. <laughs> I've played that song um, in many bands. <laughs> it is a killer tune, man, but that's my mom. The night moves. No um, shit. <laughs> yeah. I'll have so to she text my buddy. And, um, it was funny. My, I was talking with my wife and we were remembering the story my mom told us where she got this royalty check in the mail and she, she goes, she goes, Hey, I did an Alice Cooper record. And I was like, say what? She's like, yeah. I'm like, you've never mentioned that. Like I, I was probably like 30 when she said that to me, and I was like, you've never mentioned ever doing an Alice Cooper record. Like how did you just not think that was something cool to bring up? She's like, I honestly just forgot. She's like, it was the seventies. <laughs> <laughs> so good. So good. amazing. Yeah. And I had no idea known you for that long yeah. and i had no idea your parents were that like i knew i knew your parents were into music but i didn't know to that extent they were both just really really great singers um they went on to do form a band called dr music and they had a hit called going down the road to la and that was a massive one like it was it was a really big deal um and then in toronto there was a an off-broadway production of hair that was done that they were hmm. both in as well super cool that's awesome. Kyle, are you writing all these down? Cause we're going to, we're going to probably listen to these and talk about them on our, here's what's spinning. Up. That, that was my thoughts. Exactly. Sure. Including yeah. Terry, Terry black, unless you care. Yeah. That, <laughs> that YouTube clip on American bandstand. It's hilarious. It's like <laughs> intro by Dick Clark, like the whole nine yards. It was super cool. Well, I've got it. I've got it loaded up. For right now. <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah. <laughs> don't worry. Totally. Um, were so your parents, speaking of, sorry, Adam, just ahead, to Kyle. interject, but were your parents still into music? Like as you were growing up, like what was it like to grow up in a house that was so, um, I guess renowned on the, on the music scene? Yeah. Um, we, yeah, like we were immersed in music all the time. My mom, my mom was more of the musician of the two while they were both great singers. She was accomplished piano player, amazing guitar player, bass player. So she really taught me how to play guitar. Um, my dad could play, but not as good as my mom. Okay. Um, and it was, 
yeah, we were just immersed in music. And to be honest, my brother and I spent a lot of our early childhood sitting in recording studios while they were doing work. So we were kind of just in that world all the time. But it was funny because we didn't realize our parents were rock stars at all. Right. Um, <laughs> as kids, you know what I mean? Like it wasn't until I was older and I would be, they'd be like, people would ask about my dad or ask about my mom. And I would say, you know, Bob Seger's night moves and people was like, are you kidding? Like, that's a, <laughs> that's a big deal song. Like everybody knows that song. Yeah. Um, and then I really realized that they just did a really good job of shielding us from all the craziness of them being mm. professional musicians. Um, wow. hmm. yeah, it was really, it was an interesting childhood for sure. Um, I didn't realize how popular my dad was as a child star until after he passed away, because when he mm. passed away, my brother and I suddenly were the direct link for media and paparazzi who wanted to get interviews and stories and this and that, and what happened to your dad during his childhood. And as a pop star, it was crazy. It was mm. absolutely nuts. We walked out of the funeral service for my dad and there, it was like, we were in like Los Angeles. There's just Jeez. photographers and people trying to get us for 10 minutes to talk to us about it. And his diehard fans that followed him as a child. And these people haven't listened to a thing my dad had done in 40 years, but they were still obsessed with him because he was this child star. And mm. it was weird. It was wow. super, super weird. That's, that but is I, re bizarre. I, I respect and appreciate the fact that they, they kind of cocooned us from all the nuttiness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Crazy. Who knew you knew <laughs> <laughs> now, now every, now everyone knows many layers to me, my man, many layers. I know. Um, so I wanted to ask when we get into, when we're going to start getting into some of your bands here, sure. um, like back in, back when we worked together, all those years, you were, um, you were like constantly showing me like a ton of new music and a ton of new bands. Sure. Um, and like you introduced me to like certain bands like Mastodon. I remember yeah. when the crack, when crack the sky came out, we were Oof. just last what a record all the time. Yeah. And like Kings of Leon, my morning jacket. Um, yeah. The, the early Kings of Leon stuff was, it was too good. They got a little bit flaky as they went on, but their first yeah. couple, like three records were man. Oh man, where they were good. Totally. And, and, um, Z my morning jacket is still like maybe one of my favorite records ever made. Absolutely. That, that's if, if I had to lay down a top 10 album list, it'd be hard for me, like all time for me, but I could definitely say that would be on there for sure. Yeah, totally. Um, and I also remember collectively losing our minds when, uh, like them crooked vultures released. Their thing. And, uh, one day, one day is a lion. Oof. Whatever the yeah. hell happened to that, by the way. Well, I think Zach Rocha is really difficult to work with. <laughs> um, and John Theodore is probably the best drummer in rock and roll right now. I know you don't agree with that, but that's my personal opinion. Well, maybe in rock he's, and roll. I think he is John. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's, he's big. I would say he's your next best bet to John Bonham. That's my opinion. Totally. John, John Theodore, by the way, Kyle, he drums for Queens of the Stone Age right now. Yeah. Okay. And he did but the also, first, he did that Mars Volta record, uh, Deloused in the yeah, Comatorium. Uh, that album is out of control. 
Um, and also, I don't know if you remember this too, but I wanted to bring up that one of the best pieces of advice you gave me once you found out I was into getting into playing guitar is you told yeah. me to go out and buy the, the self-titled Rage Against the Machine album tab book and learn every single song. Yeah. And I recommend that to every new guitar player. When anybody says, comes to me and says, hey, I'm learning how to play guitar, what's my next step? Tell them if you're learning just to thread normal chords is get a Nirvana album and try and learn those songs because they're very basic, but his songwriting was so effing good. But then when you want to step up out of that, you're getting to some really complicated stuff. Tom Morello is just, if you can play along with that guy, you're so much better for it as a guitar player in the end. Totally. Cause I, like, I always liked rage, but never really had any sort of respect to be honest for Tom Morello. Yeah. Like I liked how I liked how like all of his stuff sounded, but I didn't know what was going on, like kind of behind the scenes. And I remember sure. I did that and I still have the tab book to this day. Nice. And I remember like trying to learn these songs. And I was like, holy fuck, these are hard. Like way hard, harder to think. Yeah. Way harder. So, yeah, they're um, really hard on bass too. I actually used that same sort of theory when I decided that I would play bass in Bear Horse. And I was like, I got to get my chops okay, up because I'm cool. just not that good of a bass player. Um, and so I just, I went through that whole record and got mm -hmm. a workout in because it's to play really pronounced bass is really hard mm -hmm. and have it stand out is even harder. Um, and Tim Comford is a ridiculously solid bass player. And so him playing those Tom Morello riffs, it's perfect sort of marriage of you know, get your, get your workout in right before, yeah. so you can actually you keep up. So that was a, that was a really long way <laughs> of sure. asking you, you mentioned like you already, we just went over how like your mom and your dad influenced your music and how your mom kind of influenced you to pick up a guitar. But I was uh -huh. curious as to, um, I guess like pre Cranston, before we get into that, what particular artists and bands and stuff? Uh, influenced the most and like influenced your playing and your writing the most? Sure. Well, I definitely say Rage Against Machine was a big direct impact on Cranston for sure. Um, before that, Cranston Foundation was a, a, in a different variation of that when we were in high school with me and Jeremy Dow and a, an assortment of different drummers, just a three piece. And back then, it was a lot of Weezer. Weezer was huge for us. Um, Nirvana, massive, um, I'm trying to think like dinosaur junior back in the nineties was absolutely massive for us too. uh, where did, the, where did the, where did the reggae influence on that album come in? Yeah, that kind of came around just because in like, uh, like the early two thousands, there were these just great little handful of bands that were doing lots of reggae. And we really loved sublime at the time. Like Sublime, when they were, when Bradley Knoll was still alive, was mm. they just were doing something so different. Um, and my parents always exposed me to like the police, um, like the Clash. Um, Joe Strummer's early 2000 albums are so good. Like they're so mm. good. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, it was just that kind of stuff. And we were really like love and punk rock at the time really loving a lot of hip hop at the time. Uh, and it just kind of felt like those married together. Well, you know, punk rock, hard rock, hip hop, and reggae kind of all go 
sort of hand in hand to a certain degree? Totally. Well, they did meld well together because you said at the beginning, like that kind of Cranston's a little bit of a deep dive into your, into yeah. your disc- discography, but that's like still one of my favorite albums and my, my favorite album that you've ever done, by the way. Thanks. Um, I think part of that is probably nostalgia. Sure. Because it brings me back to those, those BP days. Yeah. It was a different time in music too. I find, um, yeah, I can hear the difference in the way I sing and phrase stuff on those albums. I almost sometimes feel a little cringy at the time, but I was very into Zach De La Rocha from Rage Against the Machine then. And I was very into the idea of being MC for a while. I did do that. But then by the time we released Communicate, I backed off the rapping a lot and I was more focusing more on being a singer and letting Rick handle the, right. the hip hop side of things. Um, and I was more in the captain seat totally. of writing that band. So it's hard to rap and play guitar really well at the same time. <laughs> yeah. They're kind of opposing rhythms and I think it'd be hard to rap and drum at the same time too. <laughs> oh, totally. Totally. So yeah, I, by the time we recorded that album, I was mostly just singing, but yeah, it was a weird kind of hybrid. I think at first, I think some people passed it off as like rap metal and it wasn't that it was, there was more layers to it. I felt. Um, we were freaking out and screaming and stuff too. Don't get me wrong, but that wasn't, it wasn't like Limp Biscuit or all the new metal stuff of the early two thousands. You know, it was, it was off doing something else, but, um, I don't know. It was a fun time. It was a really fun band. Yeah. Cool. Actually, Adam introduced back in those Boston pizza days, Adam had shown me Cranston foundation and they had made it into my library as well too. Oh, and thanks, so, man. Yeah, no, it, it's just kind of funny meeting you after all these years. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's like oh, you yeah. see the face behind the voice now. Yeah, right. exactly. <laughs> so what what ultimately led uh we won't get too much more into it, but I'm just curious what ultimately led to that band breaking up because you mentioned right off the top that like you had like a lot of exposure from it and mm-hmm. like it was getting some really good recognition. I remember the day you came into Boston pizza when there was that write up about the Calgary flames and they were, I was, this? and they were talking about their, yeah. hype, their hype up song. I, I have. And Andy Robin found that newspaper. Like, yeah. Andy found that newspaper clipping actually during the pandemic. It's funny that you brought that up. No way. Um, and hilarious. I read over it and I was like, just took me back to that moment. It's like, Holy shit. The flames are using movement revolution as a pump up song in their locker room. I was just like, we're doing it <laughs> I, thought we were, I thought that next thing was going to be a record deal and off we were going to go and it uh it was just really weird we worked in that band for a long time i think we put a lot of time and mental energy into it um and we just started hitting some roadblocks a couple of the guys in the band were going in different di- kind of different directions they were just feeling different about stuff i don't know that amos was super happy uh, in his role, I think he really wanted to be more of a writer, be a creative sort of more in the captain seat. And mm-hmm. Jeremy and I, Jeremy and I were very much in full control of the writing process of that band. I don't think he was enjoying it as much as uh, he wanted to. And I could be wrong about that. And Rick was, I think Rick maybe just felt like he was the fifth wheel a little bit. You know, we were just dishing mm-hmm. parts out to him and, you know, we would, I felt like he maybe didn't feel like he was contributing. So there was some, 
I just feelings of like, maybe everything, everybody wasn't on an even platform. Um, we kind of, like I said, we were, everything was kind of bubbling up to a point where we're like, it's going to happen. Like things we're going to go on tour this band. We're going to, we'll re-record this whole album maybe. And it's going to be hit internationally. And we had booked a show to open for Alexis on fire. It was a new year's show. And we were so stoked about that. And meanwhile, we also had the exposure contest show with Tokyo police club that we we're going to play. Wow. And Rick had decided that he would book a trip to Mexico that would land on both of those dates. Ah, <laughs> and we just looked at each other. We're like, oh guy, how can you like, what, like what? Yeah. And we were just, it was just like, we couldn't believe it. So we were like, fuck, we're going to have to cancel the, the exposure show. This is ridiculous. We just got all this stuff out of it. We didn't end up canceling it. We did it without him, which was really weird because everybody in the audience was like, where's Rick? <laughs> um, <laughs> it didn't make sense. Ironically, at that time, um, our drummer from that album had left the band. We had brought back in Nate Gablehouse, who's an absolutely killer drummer. And so we went back to Jack and asked him to sing all Rick's parts at the show. <laughs> it was so bizarre and it worked, mm. but it didn't feel right. And I right. feel like that was the beginning of the end. We just realized that there was some tension in the band that wasn't being talked about. Doing it differently wasn't going to work. We obviously tried it. It didn't feel right. Um, and then we had to pull shoot on that, uh, Alexis on fire show, which uh, probably would have been maybe our sure. biggest show we would have played because Alexis on fire in the mid early two thousands was they're huge. Yeah. They're massive. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They were on fire. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's just at that point, I think all of us creatively were a little exhausted with that band. Okay. Um, and, uh, it wasn't like a dramatic sit down. Everybody were breaking up. It just kind of dissolved. Um, hmm. Jeremy and I and Nate started just jamming the three of us, um, did a side project called the juniors. Um, it was very police Bedouin sound clashy. Um, it was a good okay. fun time. We made a little like a mini album and did a quick tour. We played with some cool bands being Bedouin sound clash being one of them. We did a show with MXPX and Headley. So weird before that guy turned into a fucking creep. Yeah. Weirdo. Uh, oh, what an awful person that guy is. Um, but, yep. so we were kind of off doing that on the side. And meanwhile, Amos, our guitar player in Cranston was hard at work writing a bunch of songs that he didn't feel comfortable. I think providing to Cranston, they didn't, they weren't like Cranston. They were very, very different. They were very kind of my morning jackety. They were, dinosaur jr it was like really just like straight ahead rock and roll and he'd been writing them with the perspective that he was that he was the singer um and so he basically came to jeremy uh, our bass player for that band and nate our drummer for that band and said i've been writing this project uh with a friend of mine and i'd love for you two to be the rhythm section so they hired on nate and jeremy uh, I didn't realize the person he was writing with, with was Jason Clare from Belvedere. Um, and so they had this sick little four piece, but they were like, uh, 
they kind of all felt like it was sort of missing something like it needed a second guitar or a third guitar, I should say, because Amos would play and then he wouldn't play. Uh, Jason Clare, who's playing guitar, is just an absolute ripper. And he was doing all these shreds, but there are certain points where it needed guitar minis or also another rhythm. And um, I had moved away. I was in Vancouver then going to culinary school. But I was also looking at moving home because we were going to have our first kid. So Jason Clare actually flew out to Vancouver for a, a work conference. And he called me up and he's like, hey, I want to meet with you. And I was like, okay, we knew each other, but we weren't super close at the time. And he basically said, he's like, Hey, word on the street is you and you're going to have a kid and you're moving home. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's the plan. And he's like, okay, great. He's like, well, Mallard is uh, in full swing and we need another guitar player and somebody who can really, really sing. He's like, we'd love to have you. And I was like, uh, that's awesome. Of course I'm going to move home and then jump dive right into another band. <laughs> right. Um, cause that's something I was kind of missing in Vancouver a little bit. Um, I, I should say towards the end, it wasn't cause I was actually forming a band before I moved home. Um, but I basically just said, yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll join in and, and play with you guys. And so that was really fun. It was liberating because cool. I was in a band that I didn't have to write anything. I didn't even have to think about anything. I just had to play the songs exactly like Jay and Amos had written them. Um, and it was really fun. I was a backup guy and a guitar cool. player and I just got to have fun the entire time and like watch the crowd and not be the, the focal point. And so that was really, really cool. Yeah. I really enjoyed that. Um, awesome. I pulled the plug on a band that I had briefly formed in Vancouver. Um, this is funny because this segues into old ghosts. Okay, um, perfect. Cause that was my next question. So yeah. Go, so yeah. So, go ahead. because so we had, we had to pull, well, I had, we had to move home to have our first uh, child. Um, and kind of five months before we made that decision, I had finally gotten so sick of not playing live music that I started a band with, uh, two friends of mine, Chris Langman and Ray Garraway. I don't know if you know Ray Garraway, but Ray Garraway is, or was, I should say chaos's drummer. And he's an absolute motherfucker as far as drums go. Like he <laughs> was unbelievable like one of my favorite yeah. drummers um that chaos album it's blue it's like aquarius or something like that it's he's the drummer on that like that I everyday saturday night song oh my god so good he's just one of the best drummers i've ever played with in my life and uh we had this cool band that we put together where it was me on guitar chris langman on he had a big Rhodes keyboard that he had an old school with the big bass cab on the bottom Nice. And then Ray just slamming drums. So it really had this hmm. weird kind of um, one day as a lion broken down sound. Um, okay. And then we were doing all these kind of like police sounding vocal lines. So it was really cool. But obviously we moved home. So that band kind of got unplugged. Um, hmm. So as I moved home, I joined Mallard and we were playing lots of great shows. Um, and then... Pablo Puentes approached Jeremy and Nate and I and asked us what we thought about, you know, getting together and just goofing around, doing some jamming. Right. And at the time, excuse me, I had, uh, I had a pocket full of songs from my band in Vancouver, which was called Inner City Ghosts. And hmm. I basically was like, well, I've got all these songs that I'm not using in Mallard we can use them for this. And he's like, great. He's like, well, I've got all these songs that I've written. Let's kind of mash these together 
and then start writing together. And we did. And for the first time ever, I was in a band where each one of the four people or each one of the members was a full contributor. It was really, Hmm. it was like, everything was in perfect balance. It was super fun. We were heavy, but not, we were proggy, but not, we were stoner rock, but not, it was just all over the place, but it had its own specific style, two singers. Nobody was the lead singer. It just was really, really cool. And it was a super, super fun band. Um, and so as old ghosts got a lot more traction and more popular, Mallard kind of steamed down a little bit and it kind of mm-hmm. just settled. Um, Jason Clare went back out on the road with Belvedere toured hard through Europe and Japan. So he was gone. So we weren't playing shows with that, but we were playing a lot of shows with old ghosts at the time. Um, that we kept on going. It was going great. We did an album. We were having a great time. We were, I thought we were melting faces everywhere we went. And you were. I remember, were I remember seeing you at the ship. Yeah. And it was awesome. And that album fucking rips by the way. Thanks. So um, anyone out there, it, go find it on Bandcamp. Yeah. It's a cool one, man. It, like I said, it's just, it's, it's a product all its own. Um, however, we were steaming along with old ghosts and, um, our drummer, Nate, um, who is probably one of the best drummers in the country. If you ask me, mm-hmm. he, uh, he got hired on to be the drummer for JJ Shiplet, who, who had signed a record deal and they were playing hockey arenas across the country. So it's like, of course you're going to take that option, right? Like you, right. you're going to go. So we all understood Nate was going to leave. Um, we thought about other replacements that we could potentially do. Uh, Matt Doherty from, um, from uh, the dudes uh, had offered to come play for us. And we we're like, well, that sounds sick. Of course we want to have Matt Doherty come play for us. And, uh, for some reason though, it just didn't work right. It's like that perfect balance we had with all four of us. When you removed one of us, it just toppled over. Right. And it just didn't feel right. And we all knew it. It's just, it's, it's weird. It just, you could just feel the the relationship wasn't working Mm. and it just kind of unraveled, which was really frustrating. I think at the time, um, and it just kind of went sideways. Um, mm. shortly after that, Pablo and Jeremy started writing this prog metal, uh, project with, uh, Fraser Wright, and that became Locutus and they're still going strong and absolutely ripping. They're so good. It's all instrumental prog, super metal. So fun. Um, they are how do you spell, absolutely how do you spell that? Locutus L O C O T U S like the Borg ship from Star Trek. <laughs> and uh, so they're, they're really great. At that time, though, I wasn't doing anything. And I was so in this funk of, God, I wish I could, you know, maybe join in with them, but I didn't want to ask because that's weird. If you don't ask to join somebody's band, they ask you to join their bands. And I was just really frustrated. And I kind of just got in this kind of this little hole of a, a pity party. And I was really frustrated that I wasn't playing, that I wasn't being asked to be a part of something, I guess. I wasn't mad at anybody for it. I wasn't upset with them, but I was more frustrated with myself that I didn't have anything going. So I was in the midst of having a pity party and complaining to my wife as I do. And, uh, 
she just looks at me and she's like, why don't you pick up your bottom lip and go write an <laughs> album by yourself? And I was like, what am I going to do, Andy? Write every single instrument on every single track and then sing it all too. She's like, well, you can do it. So why don't you just do it? <laughs> and I was like, how am I going to just do it, Andy? And she's like, I don't know. She's like technology, man, just figure it out. And I was like, fine, I will go figure it out. So I went downstairs and I was like, fuck, where do I start? And I started goofing around on GarageBand just so I could have something to play with. Yeah. And that was the beginning of Bear Horse. I just started writing and writing and writing. And it was like these floodgates opened and I couldn't stop. There was just like songs flying out of me left, right, and center. I was like, it got to the point where I'm like, I've got enough material now that I have to hire people to come play with me because this is pointless if I'm just going to sit in the basement. So I reached out to an old friend of mine, Jay Chisholm, who uh, was a great guitar player. He played in some bands in Calgary. Uh, he was in Chicobsa. We grew up together in Oak Tokes. And uh, he lived in my neighborhood. And I was just saying, hey, man, like, can I bounce some of these ideas off you? I need a second guitar player to play, play these with. And he said, yeah, man, like, uh, of course, let's, let's, let's jam together. So I would go over to his house and I'd show him these songs I'd created on GarageBand. And he just would look at me and be like, what have you been doing, man? Like, this is insane. Like, these songs are great. So we got comfortable, just the two of us sort of working through them. We'd use GarageBand as our drummer, just through a Bluetooth speaker. And we'd play on acoustic yeah. guitars or just unplugged. And uh, we just uh, kind of kept plugging away at that. And then we we're like, you know what? I think we need to rent a jam space and we should apply a drummer to this. So we reached out to another friend of ours, Sammy Woodland, who is also Ben Woodland's cousin from uh, a total disappointment. And uh, we asked Sammy if he'd be interested in playing with us. Sam's a Brit. So he's got this really different sort of take on his music style. He loves punk rock, Mm -hmm. but he's also into bands like, like block party and like this Brit rock scene that I don't think a lot of us pay attention to or that we know about this very in depth. And so we thought he'd be a cool addition. So we added him in and it worked like right away. And we kind of were taking our cues from like Royal blood death from above where it's like very dialed back, just a three piece, but we wanted it to bang. Right. Um, so it's full distortion on the bass all the time. The guitar is more like the bass is more the rhythm guitar and the guitar is playing bass lines, if you will. It's really weird. Okay. But uh, we kind of just kept on going at it. And then out of nowhere, we were just like, man, we're ready for shows. And we want to seriously shred right now. So we jumped on a few Lacutus uh, bills. And people were like, wow, you guys are no joke. Did some, uh, did some Belvedere shows. We did, got a good maybe four or five shows in before the pandemic hit. And, uh, and then the pandemic hit, but we also were able to start recording before the pandemic hit. So we were able to work on that and work on this record that we're in the midst of starting to roll out singles. So that's the, that's maybe not the abbreviated version of my band career, but that's, (laughs) that's the quickest path I can give you without talking you up for another three hours. That, uh, that pretty much sums it up. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Um, I have to ask. Go ahead, Adam. I was going to say, I have to ask this because it's just something that I noticed and I don't know if there's a reason behind it. Um, a lot of your music has to do with animals. 
I, I don't know if you realize this, but like, like not so much in Cranston, but like you're, you're in a band called Mallard. Um, yeah. Right. Like old, old ghost has a song called like lions and hyenas and animals flee. And then <laughs> yeah, of course, right. and then of course your band is, is, is two animals now. Yeah. Called, <laughs> called bear, bear horse. And, and like, even in this first single that we're about to, we're going to hear soon, you're talking about like lions and stuff in there. So I'm just curious if there's a, yeah, I guess any, it, like appropriation with that, or is that just kind of a funny coincidence? I don't know. I, <laughs> like I, I'm an animal lover, I guess. Like, yeah, I, I, I don't think I did it intentionally. Um, I think working with Pablo, his writing style, he would write things from about animals and stuff like that. And I really enjoyed that. I thought that was just really cool. Um, mm. as far as the single that you guys are going to play, um, there's sort of like a juxtaposition through it. It sounds like I'm just saying lions all the time, but there's a lot of time where I'm saying lying and then resolving the, the, the vocal line with lion. Okay. And then in the choruses, it's talking about a relationship that's kind of becoming frayed. And the fact that I find when relationships can become frayed, those people become prey for other people. So kind of tying back in the lion. <laughs> it's a weird sort of roundabout, but that's the best answer I can give you. Perfect. Yeah. I was just curious. Cause I kind of started noticing that. And then especially when, when you messaged me and was like, I'm, I'm in a new band called bear horse. I was like, there goes the animal thing again. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny enough. I, I got that idea from a guitar player I played with long, long time ago. And he had watched, uh, it's a Natalie Portman movie. Is it oblivion or, Oh yeah. The, it's where um, that thing comes down and it creates the shimmer and everything inside of it starts to bleed and blend together. Yeah. And he, I remember him posting something being like, Whoa, a motherfucking bear horse. That thing that when it opens its mouth, it screams. <laughs> and I just, as soon as he said that, I was just like, I'm going to steal that. <laughs> Cause that's just a comment. And I will say Brett Shulin, thank you so much for, saying on instagram bear horses are amazing and i was like they are amazing <laughs> yeah really cool name and super cool um album art too yeah that was done by uh keelan kennedy um she is married to my wife's cousin and she's a super talented artist she did that in with a pencil bro whoa no way yeah it's That's all crazy. done in charcoal pencil i have it downstairs it's she's That's a incredible. phenomenal artist that's yeah, really she's cool. really, really talented. And uh, I just approached her and asked her if she'd be interested in doing the album art. And she's like, well, what do you want me to do? I'm like, well, we're called Bear Horse. So could you do a split image of a bear and a horse? And she's like, those are very two different animals. I'm like, yeah, but if you make one do this way and the other way, it's, <laughs> it's going to work, right? And she did a surreal job. It looks amazing. Yeah, it does. Looks rad. Yeah. I also love the on application. I love the application of the yep. vertical bar grammar. Exactly. Also, <laughs> thanks. I'm glad you caught that. Yeah, That's exactly yeah. what it is for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to mix that with a bunch of uh, different sort of, we've got so many options with that image, but we'll use it a lot with uh, overlapped pictures of, you know, Hubble space sure. telescope stuff. That's kind of our thing where all of our songs on this album are titled more with the space theme but none of them are about space. <laughs> <laughs> but if you notice, um, Ghost Ship is based on uh, the name of it, 
the song has nothing to do with the name, but the name we were talking about, um, there is a, a movie where, oh, Frig, how does it go? There's this spaceship that goes into a black hole or something or a wormhole and comes back 20 years later. And it's been in this awful, terrible dimension. Um, hmm. and it's this ghost ship and everybody who boards it meets an untimely death. But uh, we're like, ghost ship, that sounds sick. Let's use that. Right on. That's awesome. So yeah, speaking of that uh, new single, we're going to take a second here and uh, listen to it. Um, So this is the new debut single from Calgary-based band Bear Horse with their track Ghost Ship. So that was the new song Ghost Ship from Bear Horse. And we're sitting here with Alex Black, who's the bass player and brainchild of this band. Um, so Alex, when you messaged me about that, which kind of led to us 
um, having this interview today. And by the way, thank you again for, for coming on and chatting about this with us. Well, it's my pleasure. Um, so when you, when you messaged me about it, you were saying that, that this whole, this whole writing process and, and what everything that went into bear horse was like a really cathartic experience for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering if you just wanted to touch on that a little bit and kind of what was it about this that, that gave you kind of like that, that feeling for it? Well, like I was saying, I was, I was just having a big bummer party by myself feeling like I wasn't doing any music up until the point when my wife gave me the boot and said, get downstairs and start figuring out, man, you're, you can do this. And I think when I first started, I was thinking to myself, like, geez, man, I don't know if I can do this. Like, it's a lot to write everything. Um, but the more I kind of leaned into it, the more I would just sort of overcome these things that I thought I couldn't do. Um, right. And writing in a band that you don't have any specific writing partners with, not to say that the boys I'm, I'm playing with, like they, they're a part of these songs. They've grown in different directions after these guys have played them, but writing everything from the ground up myself mm-hmm. to begin with, it just proved a lot of things to me that I didn't quite think I could do. Um, okay. In Cranston or old ghosts, it was always a, there was an equal share with somebody else of, approve or disapprove and you know what you would write and what you wouldn't write had to be okay with that other person but this was just me and i didn't need anybody's permission to do what i wanted to do in any of these songs i didn't have to feel like somebody was going to think something was cringy or lame if i thought it felt right and it felt really cool then that felt even better um totally and i just kind of felt like these songs were the best songs i'd ever written Um, I've been writing songs for a long time and, and I don't know. I just, it just gave me this sense of confidence and, um, like I'd overcome some serious adversity that I didn't think I could do. And then to hear ghost ship the way it is and every single piece on that was something that I had spent real long um, periods of time, making sure that they were going to sound exactly how I wanted them to. Would I change a few Mm -hmm. things? Sure. But as far as the musicianship, how it sounds, the idea of the song, um, how it's built, uh, I was just, in the end, I just felt really, really proud of the, the, the product that I was creating and Sam and Jay were just such amazing guys to, to be able to apply this stuff to who knew coming in that they weren't like, I basically said to them both, okay, I don't exactly want you to write anything. I just want you to play (laughs) these parts and then make them your own. And they were more than willing to do that and just jump right in and be those, those players. And that's been a really great sort of learning process for me. And I think it's, uh, it's been a really good sort of growing moment for me. Mm Cool. You kind of Dave Grohl that. Yeah, I guess. Right. Like, or, you know, like, uh, like Dallas green, just pounding out those city and color albums, man. Like that's all him. Yeah. You know, it's, it's possible. You just have to have a lot of forethought and planning, you know, like to know that I'm going to do this for this instrument 
which means this instrument has to do this. And then these, and then the drums are going to have to do this for all of this to come back around and make sense when I apply vocals to it. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. Uh, as you're talking about that, there is kind of a, a theme of, you know, being in a rut and, and then uh, um, kind of being encouraged to challenge yourself and to overcome this adversity. And, and at the end of it, having a lot of uh, gained confidence and a lot of pride in your product. And all of our listeners um, are not musicians. So I'm curious. And also a lot of our listeners don't have your wife kicking them in the butt. Uh, <laughs> so I guess like if you were to talk to the general public about that sort of journey, like how to get yourself out of a rut or like mm -hmm. what have you learned through the process that you could tell our listeners to apply to their own situations or own projects? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Um, for me, music is my, my, like my mental outlet. Um, and I can get a lot of my, my feelings of, you know, that being in a rut or if it's depression or if it's, um, if I'm just having a hard time in life in general, music is just my escape. It's something that just pulls me out of that. And I can work out my, my issues personally that I have kind of indirectly through the music. I don't have to come straight out and say, I feel specifically like this in this song. So everybody can relate to that. I'm just doing it. So I'm able to sort of like exercise those demons out, get them out of my system, put them out. But I realize that not, like you said, not everybody has that outlet. I know for some dudes, it's, you know, they go and play hockey four times a week because that helps them get stuff out of their system. Um, but I would say it's about finding your avenue. Maybe it's cooking. Maybe it's baking bread. Maybe it's playing hockey. Maybe it's picking up the skateboard you put down 20 years ago that you think you maybe should try again. Maybe it's talking to a therapist. Um, maybe it's finding somebody who you can really confide in um, that you don't feel like they're going to judge you. So you get a chance to get this tension out. Cause I think if you don't, if you just let the tension build without an outlet, um, you're going to pop. And mm -hmm. I generally say I'm lucky because like you said, I have a very encouraging, loving wife who I've been with for frigging ever. And I have music, but how quickly my dark days started popping up when I didn't have that available to me. It was, it freaked me out to be hundred percent honest. Mm -hmm. It really scared me because I didn't have an outlet to get stuff out anymore. And I felt like I was going crazy and my wife could see that I was going crazy too. And I think she realized <laughs> she knew exactly what the remedy was. She's like, you have mm -hmm. the answer in front of you. It's just harder than it was in the past. But if you don't try for it, you're going to go mental. And I think a lot of people just, for some people, it's easy to figure out what their outlet is and what they can take negative energy and turn it into positive is. And I think other people stop and go, well, I don't have a, you know, a talent or I don't have a passion that I can, I can do. So what do I do then? And what I would say to those kind of people is, is that looking for, um, like going into somebody just to talk to like a therapist is not something that anybody should be ashamed of doing. No, um, sure. in fact, they, yeah. those people, um, do a really great job of, of highlighting some things about you that are amazingly great and help you get down that path to finding an outlet of something that's going to work positively for you. Um, 
And I would say, yeah, for anybody who's in dark days, who don't have a, a passion they can pursue, you know what, probably talking with somebody is going to really, really help you. Um, mm -hmm. it'll uncover some stuff that you probably didn't know was there and making those dark days pop up. And, uh, you might feel silly at first, but you feel very, very relieved at the end of those moments too. Totally. Yeah. Uh, I was just going to say, um, prior to, to you, Alex, our previous guest, we had a whole session on, uh, on mental health. And so this is, a sure. um, it's, it's a really important topic and it's, it's good that we're talking about it again today. Yeah, I agree. I think, um, it's just funny. Like I was saying earlier, talking about the boomer generation, like mental health was something that they just didn't deal with. They did a shitty job dealing with it, to be quite honest. And mm -hmm they have all sorts of hanging ups and all sorts of crazy stuff that our parents generation went through when all they really needed to do was voice it and talk about it. I think a lot of men from that generation saw themselves as being, you know, they're too vulnerable or feminine if they're talking about issues. And I think a lot of women took a lot of shit during that um, generation as well. And they both produced this weird batch of problems that they applied to our generation as kids. And so now we're working through all that stuff as adults and trying not to yeah. do those things to our kids. Totally. And mental health is a super important thing. And if somebody feels like they're being a wuss because they have to talk to somebody about stuff, that's, that's a problem. Definitely. Yeah. Well, what, what I was going to say before is I can definitely attest to all this. Cause I don't know if you knew this, Alex, but my, my, my wife is, doing her PhD in clinical counseling, right? So she's been studying for the last eight years to become a therapist. So, so do you find that you taught... confide in her a lot or is that weird? Oh no, I do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I get, people ask me that all the time. If she like, if she like therapizes you me. <laughs> therapizes <laughs> me. and I mean, like she does to an extent, but like not, um, like I can kind of see that side of her when we, when we're discussing certain things and she'll like, she'll ask me questions that kind of make right. me go yeah. inwards and try and figure some stuff out. But I, I think yeah. that's definitely been since being married to her and her like studying all that, that's definitely opened my eyes for sure. The importance of, of that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah, that's good. But it's good that you can, that like you can find music for sure as an outlet. Yeah. For I found, I, stuff, I feel so. like that, that sounds kind of cliche though, as well. Like I'm sure people are like, of course your outlet's music, but you just sat here and <laughs> gabbed her faces off for two hours about your music career. <laughs> but obviously it is right. Yeah. Like it's, it's only cliche it, among musicians because all of us have the same outlet. <laughs> yeah. I'd also say, I'd also pile onto that though. Like cooking is something that I also have in that same wheelhouse as well. Mm -hmm. It's just something that I can, invest my full mental energy into. And I love the feeling of producing food for people that really enjoy mm -hmm. it. It's, it's super special. It's very similar to writing a song that everybody enjoys, except the, the reaction is opposite, right? With food, right. When somebody thinks the world of your dish, it's dead silence. That's how I always know if I've cooked something amazing is when you're sitting at a dinner table with 10 people and no one's talking because <laughs> everyone's mouths are full. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then with music, it's the opposite. You, you provide them something 
and they freak the hell out, you know, make a crap ton of noise. (laughs) And that's how you know that they love it. Cool. I wanted to ask you about, so um, a mutual friend of ours, Mike Garces produces, Mm. um, did he just do the song or is he doing the full, the full show? No, he's done all of it. He'll do all of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask you a little bit about him and what led, I mean, obviously you, you, you guys have been friends for a long time mm-hmm. and I don't know if you know this, but Kyle and I also have a, a musical connection outside of me working with Mike. Um, because he actually recorded a, like an EP for us for our old band. Oh, cool. I didn't know I that. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah. He probably no, makes fun of it to you, to the, to the stage, yeah. Cause right? we were young and screaming and writing prog metal that w- wasn't yeah. very good <laughs> it was what we were feeling at the time but it was not very yeah, good sure. well you know what i would yeah. say about mikey is yes i have known him for an absolute long time probably like 20 years um i'd worked with mikey in the past on uh juniors albums mikey was our road tech for the juniors um he traveled with us for cranston he was just sort of our guy hmm. that we would put out at the mixing board so that the sound yeah. tech who's being paid didn't slaughter us live. He would just yeah. go back there and babysit the sound tech. <laughs> you need make one sure of those we guys. sounded cool. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. he was always great. And he went away to San Francisco probably was like 15 years ago and did all of his recording schooling there. Uh, and when he got back, like I said, we did a, a juniors record with him. It was great. Loved working with them. Um, and then, yeah, basically when I had, gotten bear horse up on its feet. Um, he had just gotten back from touring with, uh, this pop group. He toured with them through Southeast Asia and did all their sound teching. And he'd just come home and he had bought all this new gear and he had this new studio he'd built. Um, but he wasn't getting any, wasn't, wasn't getting any calls of people to come work with him except for his sister, who's a really amazing musician, really great jazz musician. And so he was looking to sort of expose people to his new techniques that he had learned and all the stuff that he wanted to try and do. And I was like, I just happen to have this really cool project that I need to record because we want to be able to get sh- gigs without coattail and everybody. Um, so I was like, I'd love to do a project with you. I'm like, other problem is I have no money. And he's like, that's fine. He's like, I don't want any money. He's like, I need to show off the stuff that I can do with all my new equipment and my new mics and everything. He just basically said, why don't we just do each other the solid of you'll basically be able to provide everybody with an insight as to the production that I can do now. And in return, you'll have a really great sounding album that you can use for getting gigs, radio, all that kind of stuff. And we're like, nice. Perfect. Yeah. He kind of did the same thing for us. I don't, I can't remember Kyle if he charged just or not, but it was kind of very little. <laughs> yeah. It was yeah. along those same lines. Like he was yeah. just wanting to help us out. Yeah. So was, no, I, was, I was pumped when I found out you brought him on cause he's super talented. And well, the, the thing with Mikey yeah. too, and in a recording atmosphere, I've recorded with producers who I didn't know. Um, and that's a really uncomfortable feeling. I don't like it very much. And I really trust Mikey, uh, like as a friend and as a producer, he's just, I don't know. He sets this vibe and tone that for me, it's just irreplaceable. It's how somebody would talk about Rick Rubin. You know, they say Rick Rubin doesn't really do anything in the room. He's got engineers who do all the, the fader work and whatnot, 
He's mm-hmm. just there to make sure that the artists are as comfortable as possible and gives great ideas when they're needed and knows when to back off when something's not working, knows when to take breaks, yeah. knows when to tell you not to take a break, um, knows when to tell you to do it three or four more times, even when you think you nailed it. And his, his skill level is unbelievable. The stuff he can do on the fly is insanity. He's mm. absolutely one of the best to work with. And I would recommend that guy to anybody and anywhere bear horse goes, he's on team bear horse. So he's coming with <laughs> us. Nice. Right on. So what can you tell us and everyone listening about the new album? Do you have any more details, release dates, or like when's the new single coming out? What, uh, yeah. Can you share? Um, I was hoping to have a snippet of the new single for you guys to hear today, but um, I don't, <laughs> but we are, we're basically, basically taking a cue from Royal blood where they released about a song every month and a half through the pandemic to keep people's interest, mm-hmm. attention sort of fixed on what they were doing. And because we're limited with, well, soon to be not limited because Alberta's being in Alberta and we're going to throw the doors open and, for the summer apparently. And so we'll be able to get a day, right? Yeah. (laughs) Um, so we'll be able to get a lot more work done, but because of the limitations we've had with the pandemic, it's really just been a lot of, we're playing telephone game. Basically Mikey does a mix, Mm -hmm. sends it to us. We listen to it on our own, send him back a crap ton of notes. He fixes those. We go back at it. So not to be able to all be in the same room has been really difficult. So that's kind of where the timeline of the new record is going right now. Um, it's probably going to end up just being an EP at this point because we need to either get back in the studio and record a handful of more tunes or just pump out our hottest six songs that we have. So we thought mm-hmm. for now, it's probably better to just go with our six best and uh, release those. So we'll release cool. an, this next one will be finished. I would say probably within the next week, week and a half. So that's pretty good timing. We've been able to squeak one out probably about a month offset. Um, Ghost Ship's got an absolute metric ton of attention. Um, I think we're almost up to 20,000 streams just on Spotify. Right on. um, I don't know what the other platforms, what kind of numbers we've had, but that to me feels pretty positive. So yeah, congratulations Mm -hmm. on that. That's incredible. Hey, thanks. Thanks, man. Um, Yeah, we'll, like I said, we'll probably drop at least another two or three singles over the summer. And then the full EP would be dropped probably in September ish. Awesome. Cool. I'm super pumped to hear that. Sick. Yeah. I'm, I'm really excited for you to hear the rest of the songs are really good. I'm super proud of everything that we've been able to, to get done. And, and Mikey's been such a huge part of that. He's been able to make that such a seamless, easy transition. Nice. Awesome. So besides, uh, besides listening to bear horses music, because I know the recording process means that that's like all you're listening to, totally. <laughs> um, for our other segment that we run, uh, called here's what's spinning, uh, we asked yeah. all of our uh, guests what they're listening to these days. And so sure. besides yourself, what's, what's going in your ears? Yeah. Well, that Royal blood album is so I good. Can't get enough Ty- that. Typhoons. Yeah, it's just, I don't yeah. know what those two are up to, but they are extremely talented. I don't know very many bands that release a debut that is that good, follow it up with an album that's better, 
and then follow that album up with another one. Like usually they get the sophomore kind of jinx, but these guys, mm-hmm. I just, Holy cow. At first I thought it was a little too dancey for my taste, but then I quickly realized how effing good they are. Their songwriting is just terrific. Totally. So yeah, definitely that album, Royal blood typhoons. That, um, um, real quick, that song, um, uh... I think it's called Boilers on there. The one that oh, Boilermaker, um, Boilermaker. Uh, Josh yeah. Bahame produced that. For yeah, me. you're right. And we actually you, you can hear it all over it, and absolutely, that song is just his unreal. He should, he should have produced the last Queen's album to sound like that, in my opinion. But um, um, I agree. That's a topic for another day. But yeah. yes, that is a topic for another day. Um, DFA 1979. That new album is terrific. Uh, again, a two piece that's just a mind melter they're so good um i didn't know they had a new album out oh but it's really good they self-produced it and it's huge What's so it good huh. um what is it called um i can look it up too yeah but yeah. their their debut on excuse me their debut single off that is so good um because the, the last one i remember from them is the the outrage album yeah, this one just dropped a few months ago, like right around the same time as Royal Blood. It's really good, man. Oh, yeah. You really like yeah, it. We're gonna, we're gonna check. Um, I'm not the biggest fan of Churches, but they have this song off their new album that's coming out with uh, Robert Smith. Is that the guy from The Cure? I think so. Yeah, that single is insanity. How good it is! It's called How to Drown. Holy shit! Is it's that, such a good is song. That the- is that the churches that spells their name with a V? Yeah. Yeah. Chiverches. Like I said, I haven't really, not really into that sort of like synthy techno pop. This song isn't that. It's unbelievably good. Um, I'm trying to think what else I've been really loving. I went back to Block Party again. They've got some absolutely amazing albums that I just never get old for me. Um. But yeah, it's, I'll be honest, it's been mostly a lot of Royal Blood and DFA lately for me. Hmm. Um, and that Church's song is unbelievably good. Awesome. We'll definitely check that out. Yeah, I've been, uh, we've brought up the, the Royal Blood album a few times. Yeah. The I, rock and roll those, disco. Man, those guys are <laughs> going to win Grammy after Grammy for that record. It's going to be crazy. Yeah, they've kind of turned into a little bit of a, a hit factory, those two. Yeah, I think ever since he went straight sober, man, he's just on a different level now. And well, he talks about um, he talks about how Joshua Hame really helped him with that. Yeah, because they went to um, like they went to Rancho de la Luna and recorded that song yeah. there with him yeah. in the desert, and apparently he was struggling with it at that time, and uh, I guess he was saying in a in an interview that Joshua Homme really helped him with that. So that's kind of yeah, cool. yeah, it's really cool. I, I like I say, I I can't say enough good things about that band. They're just they're really really good. Right on. Um, so I think that I think we're gonna wrap that up about here. Sounds um, good. Unless there's anything else, Alex, you wanted to to ask us or or chat. No, about? I just want to say thanks for having me on, guys, and uh, thanks for yeah supporting the first single off of bear horse and excited for you guys to uh hear some more stuff in the coming months speaking of yeah, that where's wait. the 
best place for the audience to go and find anything that's bear horse related? Yeah, you can find Bear Horse on all your favorite streaming platforms. So whether that be Spotify, Apple Music, uh, I'm pretty sure it's through Amazon Music and YouTube Music as well. Uh, cool. But yeah, anywhere you stream your tunes, go get it. Nice. And do you have any uh, merch sorted out or any website or online store or anything like that? Not as of yet, but that all that stuff will start uh, popping up here pretty quick. Nice. Cool. If you happen to do a vinyl pressing, I would be super yes. down for that. I will shoot you one complimentary. Oh, no way. That would be awesome. Yeah. Um, and also just a reminder for listeners out there when they're searching up your band, it is actually stylized bear vertical line horse. <laughs> we, were, yeah. we, we were kind of joking about that a little bit, but you will need to type that in if you want to. Find it. Yeah. Yeah. On Apple music. I think if you just stumble through it as best you can, you find it anyway, but just look for the black and white half bear, half horse face. Yeah. We'll, <laughs> we'll put links up in the, in the notes for people to That's great. go and stream it. Um, okay. So I think that that wraps it up for this episode. Yeah. Thank you, Alex, again, for joining us and taking your time out of your day to talk everything, music and family and everything that was really cool having you on and your chef really cool career too yeah yeah and really cool just getting back in touch because it's been it's been a while since you and i have yeah when you when you stop through calgary look me up man i will for sure um so you can go as alex said go to spotify apple music youtube music amazon um and listen to the new song ghost ship by bear horse um you can follow them on instagram too for any updates and then for us, hit us up with a like, follow, comment, rating, review. Uh, you can email us at adamkylepodcast at gmail.com if you have any questions, comments, jokes, anything you want to tell us, we're there. And you can also f- find us on Instagram and Facebook at Adam Kyle Podcast. And then follow the links below to all of those places to find us. We'll throw in some links for Bear Horse and where you can go and stream and download and you should go buy that on apple music too and that does it for us today thank you for tuning in and thanks for hanging out with us i just have one more question before we wrap up it was sent to me by my brother do you think a washer and dryers are actually friends or are they just work friends (laughs) washer and dryers (laughs) oh that's funny uh and with that we're friends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs> Bye. <sighs> oh, nice work. All right. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Thanks, man. That was uh, that was a blast.
everyone. It's Kyle here. Thanks again for listening to today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed yourself. Please take a second to follow us on all of our social media. Links to our pages and any other material we talked about today are in the show notes below. Check back in next month for some additional conversation, laughs, and new music. And we wanted to give a big thank you to Adam's sister, Amanda Rishog, for designing our podcast cover image. She's a beautifully talented artist that has a tattoo shop here in Calgary called Living Prayer Tattoo. She specializes in fine line work, sacred geometry, and botanicals. Follow her online handle at Living Prayer Tattoo on Facebook and on Instagram, where you can find all of her work and booking information. And lastly, thanks again to Phoenix Song Productions for the continued technical and financial support, which helped make this podcast possible. We'll see you next time.